This week on the show, we cover a kernel of failure. We also have an IPv6 fragmentation vulnerability in OpenBSD's PF to report, a guide to the terminal using a YubiKey for SSH public key authentication, a FreeBSD desktop series, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 289, Microkernel Failure, recorded for the 13th of March, 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Röschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we're back with the BSD podcast that you are watching right now with headlines starting a kernel of failure. How IBM bet big on the microkernel being the next big thing in operating systems back in the 90s and spent millions with little to show for it. And it's billions, which is... Oh, billions even, yeah. Ah, which is even a thousand worse. millions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes it even yeah. more so it, difficult. Uh, yeah, and this magazine-like website here, they say, in the early 90s, we had no idea where the computer industry was going to go, uh, what the next big, or what the next generation would actually look like, or even what the driving factors might be. All the developers back then knew is that operating systems available in server rooms or on desktop computers simply weren't good enough for what the next generation needed to do. Uh, they needed to be better, a lot better. There was an, uh, That was easier said than done, but this problem, uh, for some reason, seemed to rack the brains of one company more than the others, IBM. Through the decade, uh, the company was associated with more overwrought thinking about operating systems than any other, with little to show for it in the end. The problem? It might have gotten caught up in kernel madness. So today's TDM article explains IBM's odd operating system fixation and the belly flop it created. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so they talk a bit about, you know, uh, back in 1991, and uh, that was the year that the open source operating system Linux was first announced. Um, and uh, IBM became the poster child for operating system failure during the 90s uh, because they tried so many different things. Uh, in an extremely simplified form, uh, the popular plot line for the personal computer revolution would go like this. IBM wanted to create desktop computers for businesses and did so using off-the-shelf parts, including the operating system, uh, which business partner Microsoft uh, had had there. Microsoft then realized its deal with IBM wasn't exclusive. Hardware companies figured out how to reverse engineer early PCs, and Apple did uh, some stuff that Microsoft later borrowed. And then boom, the personal computer revolution, just add water. Of course, as anyone who ever owned a Commodore 64, a ZX Spectrum, or an MSX knows the truth is much more complicated than that and leaves out a whole lot of history, including some created by the very companies involved in that revolution. And it talks a bit about, you know, the early IBM clones and all the wars going on there. Uh, and then after a staff reorganization at Apple in the late 80s, an offsite meeting was put on with the goal of trying to scope out the future of what macOS would be in the post-Steve Jobs era, as Jobs and Wozniak had left the company uh, at that time. And they talk about Mac OS System 4 and that. And then they talk a bit about IBM's plans uh, and how that related to Apple. And then they say, uh, in this case, uh, a quote they pulled, it will be either the definitive operating system of tomorrow or a massive flop, uh, as he was talking about IBM's uh, much-hyped Workplace OS, a microkernel-based project that uh, went on in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And then it gets on to the mock microkernel. Uh, while Telligent uh, was just getting airborne, employees at IBM were already working on a microkernel of their own based on the existing work done on mock at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, the name of IBM's endeavor was Workplace OS, the mission to become the operating system at the center of every other operating system. <laughs> yeah, history. It's interesting to watch from now back uh, to those to those times. Mm -hmm. But but also seeing yeah. the correlations to even what happens today, where you know certain BSD license code happens to get into most every operating system. 
Yeah, things like there are certain parallels. Yeah. Uh, as IBM had interests in numerous operating systems at the time, you know, beyond OS2 and Intelligent, it also had legitimate say in the direction of MS-DOS and Windows and the operating system standard POSIX, along with its own in-house operating system, AS400 and AIX. It was perhaps the closest thing to the center of the world of operating systems at the time. And with interest in microkernels on the rise, in part due to their perceived reliability benefits, IBM was in a position to push forth its vision which it attempted to drive in part because it felt it could save money by having a standardized base for all these different operating systems. Doesn't that sound like exactly what BSD was trying to do? Yeah, one, yeah. very closely. You know, one set of code that's good that can be reused in a bunch of different places. Mm -hmm. And it's still true in, in mm -hmm. nowadays world. <laughs> Turns out, saving money was expensive. <laughs> a University of California Riverdale researcher uh, noted in the 1997 postmortem of IBM's efforts that IBM had spent nearly $2 billion trying to get Workplace OS off the ground, approximately 0.6% of IBM's total revenue over that five-year period, uh, and nothing to show for it. Workplace OS, uh, whose kernel ambitions effectively torpedoed Telligent's own microkernel, by the way, uh, though not the intelligent project itself, was audacious, to say the least, the concept of conceiving around something called the Grand Unification Theory of Operating System, or GUTS, the guts of a computer, um, <laughs> which effectively aimed to build standard subsystems around common operating systems so that different pieces of software could use the same basic services, even if they were for different operating systems. It's interesting as we've started to get a little bit more back towards something like that where the operating system is providing services for the applications. Like if you look at the way iOS or Android work, although not standardized, so maybe we didn't actually learn anything from all of this. Mm. But as a platform, anyway, yeah. There's uh, huge amounts more stuff in here if you're interested in you know, the history of operating systems and uh, microkernels and how all this went. It's definitely worth checking out. Mm -hmm. And the next item we have is a CVE, actually, or more like a security assessment report uh, for IPv6 fragmentation vulnerability in OpenBSD's packet filter. Yes, that's PF. And this is um, from Synactive. You know, the ACK in there, Syn and ACK. Mm -hmm. Got it? Um, <laughs> A security advisory uh, about the IPv6 fragmentation vulnerability, and they describe it in their, well, it's, I guess, an issue that they have, or like a, a magazine-style uh, uh, CVE. It's just a white paper PDF. But anyway, it says, uh, the packet filter is OpenBSD's service for filtering network traffic and performing network address translation. The packet filter is also capable of normalizing and conditioning TCP IP traffic, as well as providing bandwidth control and packet prioritization. The packet filter is part of the default kernel since OpenBSD 5. Because other BSD variants import parts of OpenBSD's code, this same packet filter is also shipped uh, with at least the following distributions, uh, maybe affected to a lesser extent, uh, FreeBSD, PFSense, OpenSense, Solaris, uh, etc. Uh, note that the other distributions may also contain packet filter, but due to imported versions, they might be uh, might not be vulnerable in the same way. This advisory covers the latest OpenBSD's packet filter. For specific details about other operating systems, uh, please refer to the advisory uh, for those affected products. Anyway, on to the issue. Uh, unless IPv6 reassembly is explicitly disabled, PF reassembles IPv6 fragments to perform the filtering based on its configuration. Uh, the reason, uh, this isn't part of the paper here, but the reason you do that is so that you can't fragment the packet in such a way that it won't match the firewall rule, get through the firewall, but then be reassembled uh, on the end host. So PF reassembles the whole packet so it can check the original packet against uh, the firewall rules. Mm -hmm. And then the packets are refragmented to comply with any end-to-end -end nature of IPv6 fragmentation. But uh, PF is trying to reassemble it so that it can check the rules against the entire um, uh, packet. 
Sorry. All right. While dealing with maliciously fragmented IPv6 packets, the function pf reassemble6 and pf refragment6 may use an improper offset to apply uh, a transformation on the packets. This behavior can have the following impacts. It can cause a kernel panic, uh, which would stop the system, or an unexpected modification of the packet before and after the application of the filtering rules can occur. This may be leveraged to bypass the rules uh, under some circumstances. They have an example on uh, page 10 of this report where they actually wrote a rule that you could get around by fragmenting the packet in such a way that when OpenBSD reassembled it, it wouldn't actually match. And then when it refragmented, it would go back to uh, the original form. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and yes, uh, note that in the OpenBSD generic kernel, uh, if you hit a panic, it will drop to the debugger and will not reboot without manual intervention. So it does actually turn this into a denial of service. Rather than just causing the router to reboot, it actually stops it in the debugger, uh, which would keep the firewall offline until somebody fixed it. Um, so based on their judgment, uh, this bug has existed since uh, OpenBSD 5.0 through 6.4. So that's, I think, the whole time that PF has been in OpenBSD. And they have a link to the OpenBSD uh, patch you can apply to solve the problem. You can also temporarily work around the problem by uh, adding set reassemble no to your PF rule set. Uh, they have a timeline of when they discovered the vulnerability. They contacted uh, OpenBSD, FreeBSD, PFSense, OpenSense, and Oracle. Uh, they got the response from the OpenBSD developers uh, providing patch and a public disclosure date. And then uh, on March 1st, the public fix became available and disclosure of the issues. They also acknowledge uh, help from Alexander Bloom from OpenBSD, uh, Ed Mast and Christoph Provost from FreeBSD, Alexander Nedvedecki from Oracle, and Az Chevales from OpenSense uh, for working with them on the advisory. And then there's more technical detail about how IPv6 and fragmentation work, the actual fragmentation handling in OpenBSD. With pictures. PF, yep. Specifically. Well, uh, snippets of code and so on, yep. and, and some diagrams of what the packet looks like, yep. Mm -hmm. uh, the details of the vulnerability with annotation in the code showing where uh, things needed to change. Yeah, pretty detailed. Yep. And, and showing how uh, you can uh, trick it. And then their proof of concept where they show how to create a packet that will panic an OpenBSD machine. Yeah, to exploit what it that. Looks like. And then rule bypass uh, with a quick disclaimer that says the following aims to demonstrate that the vulnerability may be used to insert uh, inconsistencies that can be leveraged to bypass a filtering rule to reach a filtered port on a remote host. The described technique will indeed bypass the rule, but the uh, constructed packets will likely be rejected by that remote host. Therefore, the explained attack is not practical uh, because you don't necessarily get a valid packet at the end, but you do get the packet through the firewall. However, it is unknown if another more generic attack might be possible. So, um, in the following, we will only demonstrate the attack uh, to bypass a rule that only allows uh, to reach a web server on port 80. The objective is to try to send a TCP packet uh, on its port 1000. Uh, Packet filter is deployed as a firewall with a configuration basically saying block everything, but allow in and out on port 80. Um, but we're going to show how you can actually talk to port 1000, which should be blocked. So they construct a specific packet that is allowed to pass in. Uh, then to take advantage of the patch at the refragmentation step to change the interpretation of that packet. So uh, to achieve the interpretation change, uh, a possibility is to patch the next header field of an extension. This will modify the allowed extension type from a legitimate one into a fragment uh, because at the refragmentation stage, it is only possible to patch the IP proto fragment. Um, so an extension header must be built in such uh, a way that it was also valid when considered as a fragment. The most obvious choice to do this is 
once again, an AH packet uh, because its header can overlap uh, quite well with the fragmentation headers and they show how they construct those that headers. Packet. And then they show using Scappy to actually send it. And you can see that while you can connect to port 80, you can't connect to port 1000. Then you use a little script. Uh, and running TCP dump on the host, we see the connection to port 1000 coming in uh, on the machine behind the firewall where it's not supposed to be able to get there. Yeah, it should be blocked uh, before that. Yeah. So, uh, nice bit of research. Uh, make sure you patch up your firewall. Yeah, so Christoph Provost, who maintains the port of PF in FreeBSD, uh, added at the time of this recording a test for the vulnerability in FreeBSD's head. So there's a test now for this vulnerability. So in case someone introduces this by accident in the future as a re regression, the test will trigger that. So time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we start with how I'm still not using GUIs in 2019. A guide to the terminal. So this is from Lucas F. Costa and his website and has a little too long didn't read part, of course, uh, providing his dot files. Uh, use them and have fun. But before we get to that, uh, he starts with GUI's uploadware. I, he said it before. There's another blog post about that. Uh, however, rather than just complaining about IDEs, he'd like to provide an understandable guide to a much better alternative, the terminal. IDE stands for Integrated Development Environment. This might be an accurate term, but when it comes to a real integrated development environment, the terminal is a lot better. And in this post, he'll walk us through everything uh, that we need to know to start making your terminal a complete development environment. How to edit text efficiently, configure its appearance, run and combine a myriad of programs, and dynamically create, resize, and close tabs and windows. Yeah, you see that a lot at uh, conferences where developers just let them appear and resize them real quick and you wonder how they do that. Mm -hmm. And so this is a little bit of an introduction for that. So in an IDE, you can only use plugins made specifically for it. In a terminal, you can use any program. An IDE limits you to the extent of what the creators envisioned you would want to do. The terminal, on the other hand, allows you to combine many programs easily. Thanks to streams, you can use a program's output as the input to another or also called pipes. Uh, they provide the flexibility and enable creative use of diverse sets of tools for purposes their authors might have never imagined. So these are the most remarkable characteristics of uh, Unix. We covered that uh, in previous episodes, always praising the, um, the pipe, of course, and the pipe construct. And the GUI learning curves are a bit more steep uh, or um, yeah, for the beginners. But the more well, you get used to... It can also come down to which one you started with which one has a steeper learning curve? Yes, but, how much pain you had to suffer before you found the next much easier one. Um, yeah, so IDEs also tend to do too much magic. They hide essential details from the user for the sake of practicality, which makes it harder to determine the real cause of a problem. There are two main reasons for this. The first is that all this abstraction makes people utterly unaware of what the computer is doing. The second is that IDEs do an excessive number of operations in the click of a button, uh, which makes it harder to break down the process and diagnose which part is defective. So, and a little bit further down, he provides the terminal starter pack for the people who want to try it out. So this starts with, these are the main programs I use to make my terminal a complete development environment. So NeoVim, Tmux, iTerm2, and Zshell, and the oh my ZSH. Uh, extension for the Z shell. So there's a couple of um, Z shell RC uh, contents. So at the end of this post, you can find a list of the other useful programs, but let's start with NeoVim. Vim is my text editor of choice and has a special place in my heart and my ankle. Ah, there's this, another story. There's a, oh, there's a picture, uh, of course. I think it's a picture. I'm guessing, <laughs> yes, it's a tattoo. Mm. Uh, okay. With yeah. uh, colon W <laughs> tattooed on his ankle. <laughs> Okay, um, yeah, so NeoVim is another version of Vim. It has all of Vim's standard key bindings, the same features, and is fully compatible with Vim configuration options. Uh, to avoid the annoying seconds in which Vim would freeze during tasks like syntax checks, NeoVim lets you run jobs asynchronously. Uh, it also supports scripts not only written in VimL, not my favorite language, but let's put it like that, but also scripts written in Lua. 
And to make sure you are always using nvim rather than vim, you can alias the vim command to nvim by using the lines below. So it's alias vim equals nvim. And you can put them in your zshellrc.bashrc or whatever configuration file for the shell you're using. And for vimdiff, you use um, nvim-d. Then there's a section about learning vim, the basics for like navigating around, remapping your keys, uh, like deactivating up, down, left, right keys for the really hardcore folks. And then you can learn HJKL, and it takes right. a while. I like the, the opening paragraph for this, though, is even though many people fear Vim and how to quit Vim is one of the most popular questions on Stack Overflow, uh, <laughs> Vim is, uh, you know, actually a pretty powerful tool. Oh, yes. And, and you I recommend a program called, uh, or, uh, yeah, a program That's called Vim Tutor to learn how to do it. Mm hmm. Uh, yes, and yeah, then there's, of course, the resist the urge to quit uh, because it can be frustrating a bit, but stick with it, and then you will learn the philosophy behind the, the key mappings and uh, why it is the way it is. And so usually advises already proficient Vim users to not put anything they don't understand into their Vim, uh, init.vim file because um, you never know what happens. And searching for commands, meaning, will lead you to all a better understanding of Vim and will give you the knowledge necessary to configure your tools so that they match your editing style and workflow. Okay, and he covers uh, the plugins that he's using. So NeoMake, uh, which is NeoVim's main selling point for him, it allows him to run programs asynchronously and therefore avoid blocking the main thread. And with this feature uh, especially being useful for running syntax checks on any other CPU-intensive actions that would have previously caused Vim to freeze for a few seconds. Then there's the nerd tree, which will give you a visualizing and managing file tree on the side so you can navigate around. And she shows how to uh, map those in your uh, MRC like file. The other favorite here is, it says, the most outstanding plugin in this list is probably you complete me, <laughs> which gives you IDE-like semantic-based uh, completion suggestions. Uh, it takes into account the meaning of the code uh, rather than only searching for similar words and so on. Uh, the uComplete.me plugin is just a client that connects to the uComplete.me server, which is actually generating the suggestions. The server works by running uh, a different service for each language. So for uh, TypeScript or writing JavaScript, uh, you run the TS server and then hook it up. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, let's go to Tmux. Uh, Tmux is a terminal multiplexer. Essentially, this is a fancy name for a program which allows you to have multiple tabs and panes in a single terminal window. It leverages the versatility of the terminal and makes it much more flexible. And then, yeah, there yeah, you have... It also has the advantage of uh, you can detach if, say, your SSH session goes away and yes. reattach and all your tabs and panes are still there. Yes, you can run a job in the background, drive home, reattach, and find the result hopefully there. That's what a lot of people use in our cluster, uh, for example. Yeah. Uh, I love the anecdote they have here. If you're old enough to remember using Internet Explorer 6, uh, before, we are. <laughs> before tabs were invented for web browsing, uh, and the gruesome experience of having to browse the web using a pile of different windows rather than tabs, you will probably remember how big of an improvement it was when tabs were introduced. This is the same life-changing improvement that T-Box provides. Yes, and... Uh, First time you try it, you get, um, yeah, you can detach and retach, attach, but then uh, figure out how you can create different windows and terminals. And he um, refers us to his config files for setting a couple of these things. So uh, he currently uses CA. So each time you see CA, you, you mean, it means control and then A, which is your uh, prefix right. for all the so commands. Tmux defaults to control B because screen uses control A and some people needed to be able to use Tmux from inside of screen or vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in this case, I'm guessing that the user maybe was used to screen before uh, adopting Tmux. And so yes, unbind control B and bind control A. Yep. And then you can navigate between different windows or panes in this case. And you can also bind other keys if you want to split the panes either uh, horizontally or vertically. And um, now that you know how to navigate from Vim and with your HJKL, you can also have that in uh, Tmux. So you 
are already familiar with the key bindings up, down, left, right. Yeah. And then they use shift those four keys to resize the windows in those directions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in case you need a bit more space, then you make them bigger and other uh, ones uh, smaller. Uh, you can also let um, Tmux do that by hitting control, your uh, prefix key, and then the space bar, and then it will rearrange it and in certain ways, and you can cycle through these and pick the one you like. And uh, further down, he um, talks about more uh, Tmux plugins he's using. Yeah, so there's one. Show battery stats, one for CPU stats, etc. Mm -hmm. Then there's a, the section on the Z shell um, that covers basically that in Unix, a shell does the job of providing you with a text-based interface to communicate with the underlying operating system. And of course, it's the it's just another shell, but a very powerful one, especially when you add um, a little bit more to it. Uh, first, you set it down here in your uh, Z shell RC as the, your favorite editor, or the editor is now NeoVim, because that is being loaded when you set the Z shell as your default shell. And then there are installation instructions provided for the Oh My Z shell on the uh, wiki that they have. And then he gets to Z shell plugins because yes, there are also plugins for the Z shell. So he has the spaceship prompt because why not? Uh, it's pretty minimalistic and includes emojis because you always wanted to have emojis in your terminal. An essential feature for millennials, <laughs> he writes, yeah. And there's a couple of plugins for developers like the Git plugin or a bunch of convenient aliases for Git. And so these are also covered. And for the Mac users, uh, iTerm2 is covered. Uh, but in case you are not on a Mac, you uh, can skip that. And he lists also other useful programs and things to know, uh, smaller ones um, that are not in its own chapter or uh, section here, but things like curl, jq, uh, set, ag, awk, which I learned this week. It's it's not called awk, it's awk. Uh, there's cron, there's rsync, there's make, and gzip. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff here, and I guess the plugin at, uh, plugins alone are worth exploring. Yeah, so if you want to step up your command line foo, uh, check out some of this stuff. So next up, we have using uh, YubiKey as a smart card for SSH public key authentication over at the OpenBSD journal on deadly.org. Ah. So they say, SSH is an awesome tool. Logging into other machines securely is so pervasive to us sysadmins nowadays that few of us think about what's actually going on under the hood. Uh, even more so once we start using the more advanced features like SSH agent, agent forwarding, and proxy jump. When doing so, care must be taken in order to not compromise one's login or SSH keys. You might have heard of the YubiKey, which is a little USB security device. These are USB authentication devices that support several different models. They can be used uh, for one-time password authentication. They can store open uh, PGP keys. Uh, or be used as two-factor authentication token, and they can also act as a smart card. On OpenBSD, you can use them to log in with the login underscore YubiKey module uh, with one-time passwords since about 2012, and there are uh, many descriptions available on how to set it up. Uh, I tried this years ago, and while one-time passwords are nice, they have a few downsides. Basically, you have to be root to configure each host uh, that you're going to use them on, and you need some other way to access the machine in case you lock yourself out, uh, for example, by losing your one-time password device. Mm. Uh, but this is not as easy as adding SSH keys to the authorized keys file because one-time passwords are configured through the BSD authentication system, not SSH. But YubiKeys offer many other features. Uh, in its open PGP mode, they can store PGP RSA keys. Thus, the YubiKey will take care of the RSA encryption and decryption, uh, the private key won't leave your YubiKey, and it's inaccessible from the computer. Since uh, these are RSA keys, they can actually be used uh, for SSH authentication. Again, there are descriptions available online, and they have a link, uh, but all of them tell you to use gpg-agent from GNUPG with its SSH agent functionality. Your SSH client will then talk through PGP agent instead of the OpenSSH SSH agent uh, and use the YubiKey for the keys. But I don't like that very much. The GPG 
or GNUPG user interface is a disaster, and reading this documentation is a pain. Working with OpenDSD has taught me that good documentation is a must, because without that, how can you use the software safely? The documentation also shows how much the developers care, so GPG is out, at least for SSH authentication. However, the SSH client has another method uh, to talk to smart cards. It can load a PKCS number 11 library that contains the functions to access that smart card. On OpenBSD, this library is provided by the OpenSC package. Um, in turn, it needs the PCSC-Lite passage, which actually talks to your smart card reader. During the recent uh, Australia 2019 hackathon, I saw commits to SSH's PKCS11 code and decided again uh, to attempt to use my YubiKey, this time using its PIV smart card functionality. Of course, this did not work right away. I had to create the yubikey-piv-tool port. I also found a bug in SSH where it would crash on encountering a smart card protected with a pin code uh, that was uh, promptly fixed by Marcus Friedel and Damian Miller. <clears throat> so I tried the following with a yubikey Neo and a yubikey 4. Newer yubikeys have more features. The Neo only supports RSA keys, whereas the YubiKey 4 and 5 also support elliptic curve or ECDSA keys. They also have another nice feature, the touch-policy equals always. Uh, you have to touch the YubiKey to be able to use it, uh, in addition to entering the pin. That way, it cannot be used without your consent, um, with a method independent from the computer keyboard. Uh, so to get started, uh, you need the following packages. Uh, the YK PERS, or the library and tools for running the YubiKey, uh, the Yubico PIV tool, which is the YubiKey, uh, Yubico personal identity ver uh, verification tool, uh, the PC slash, or PCSC Lite, which is a resource manager for smart cards, and OpenSC, which is a set of libraries uh, for accessing smart cards. Now you can use the YK personalized tool to bring the YubiKey into one-time password plus U2F, uh, which is two-factor auth, plus CCID mode, plug in the YubiKey and run the command. Normally the key does not work as a smart card and this is needed to activate that functionality. So unplug the YubiKey again and now run the PCSCD uh, in the foreground in debug mode. And in a separate terminal, plug the YubiKey back in and watch the D message. And then uh, you can uh, configure the YubiKey, the configuration uh, and use of the YubiKey's function is protected by a management key, a pin, and a PUK. Um, you should change the defaults here. For example, you can generate and set a key using this command where they uh, DD 24 bytes out of dev random, hex dump them, uh, and feed it into the Yubico PIV tool and set it as a management key. Uh, and then change the two pins to have, uh, please use something better than one, two, three, four, five, six. Then you can have it generate uh, an RSA key and use that for SSH. Uh, mm -hmm. And they also show you generating an ECDSA key instead. And then uh, once you have the key, setting it up uh, so that uh, on the YubiKey, here's my key. Uh, my pin policy is that I only need to do it once, but my touch policy is always. So the first time the YubiKey is used, you have to enter the pin, but every time you'll have to do the touching it with your finger or whatever. And this uh, provides convenient but safe access to your key. Uh, they also say some smart card software expects that the public key comes with a certificate, uh, so we can self-sign the public key to get a certificate, uh, and they show how to do that with OpenSSL, and configure that up as well. Mm -hmm. And then they just uh, add that to their SSH agent, uh, and now their key will be loaded, and they'll be able to log into machines using their YubiKey. Yep, and when you leave your PC, take the YubiKey with you and no one else can uh, use your connections while you're gone and didn't lock your machine. 
And the chat room points out also that YK Personalize isn't needed for all the keys. It's just for additional customizations. Yeah, uh, and I think it, a bunch of it depends on which mode you have it in. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is pretty straightforward and can also be applied to other BSDs out there that have the same tools. Next up, uh, we have a series of uh, FreeBSD desktop um, articles, I would say, from Vermadon. I guess we covered them um, not all in series. I think we covered the start of a couple of them, uh, but yeah. the list has since grown. There are now 18 parts uh, to the series. So mm -hmm. if you've ever been interested in building a FreeBSD desktop on your laptop or a desktop computer, uh, you should check this out. So part one covers the boot process and how to set that up. Part two and part 2.1 cover installing FreeBSD. They have one for version 11 and one for version 12. Part three is installing X11. Part four is picking a window manager and setting that up. Part five is setting up a status bar. Uh, part six is a taskbar. Part seven is uh, automatic handling for wallpaper. So I think this includes like rotating the wallpaper and all that stuff. Part eight is picking an application launcher. Uh, part nine is, you know, setting up keyboard and mouse shortcuts to make everything faster. Uh, part 10 is a locking solution. You want your machine to lock once the screensaver comes on so somebody else can't just take uh, sit down at your laptop and do stuff. Um, and, you know, control that. Um, they also do blue light uh, spectrum suppression. So that's the, um, what's the other word for that? Redshift type thing. Uh, to keep blue light at night from... Uh, causing you sleep problems. Then they configure Openbox, DZEN2, Tint2, uh, fonts and all those frameworks, um, even how to pause any application. So if something is using a bunch of CPU and you want to free it up for something else. And uh, finally, part 17 is configuring auto-mounting of removable media. So for example, when you plug in your USB stick, having it automatically mount uh, so that you can access the files. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, Vermadon is not finished yet, uh, so there might be more in the future, and mm -hmm. uh, we'll cover those, of course. So thanks, Vermadon, for writing them up in all detail. And uh, yeah, maybe there's a tutorial sometimes for setting up your desktop from scratch in, in this way at a future conference, maybe. Uh, I would go to such a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, he regularly presents, I think, at the uh, Polish user group as well. Ah, okay. Yeah, maybe they can uh, record him or give a talk maybe about this kind of customization i guess it's a lot of uh personal things oh i like this desktop manager better or this taskbar is more to my liking but uh, yeah. for people who haven't done things like that yet and want to see what's out there this is a good way to start So, time for Beastie Bits this week. Uh, the first item we have is Drist with persistent SSH now. So, of course, you ask, hey, what is Drist? I have never heard about it. Uh, so, Drist is basically a smaller form of uh, the deployment tools like Ansible, Puppet, or Rex. And this is more for uh, the people who like the console better. And you can deploy files and execute them on remote hosts or scripts to um, you know, roll out multiple machines or make changes to them. And it's using uh, SSH, and now it supports, with this latest release, uh, persistent SSH connections. Yeah, so basically it has a set of files that will copy to every host. Then there's a directory called copy-the host name, which is files to copy only to that host. Then there's a list for files to delete uh, from all hosts or from specific host, and then scripts to run on a all hosts or a specific host. Uh, and yes, uh, previously it had to SSH in, do the thing, exit, SSH, or SSH, get the host name, exit, SSH, copy the files, exit, SSH, delete the files, exit, SSH, run the script, exit. Mm -hmm. uh, now uh, that it's using the uh, control master feature, it can do all this with a single SSH connection and just do multiple um, control windows. And this allows uh, better performance. Yeah, less establishing and tearing down connections. So it's one stream where yep. everything is going through. Uh, so Drist is pretty bare bones. Uh, I guess it's a 121 line of shell. So not, 
uh, quite the same thing as if you look at something like Puppet or Ansible, which are giant yes. globs of code. Mm. At, at this time, yeah. But yeah, they, they're flexible. And if you're only deploying to Unix machines, then this might be the solution for you. Yep. Speaking of uh, internet, uh, mm-hmm. we have the ARPANET, uh, celebrating 50 years since low. We covered this already in a previous episode, but now we have the full recording available. Right. So, so yes, uh, last week we were telling you, hey, at this time you can tune in and watch it. Um, but this one, uh, you can now watch the recording uh, and celebrate the uh, anniversary of the first message across the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 50 years and hopefully 50 more. Uh, and the network is growing since the original ARPANET. And yeah, everyone's online, I guess, and their, and their hamster. Um, <laughs> next up is something more for the gamers among us. Term Tris, a Tetris game for ANSI VT220 terminals. Yes. All right. Ask you Tetris. Ah, you see, the Tetris blocks behind Alan are shining in at uh, excitement. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in black and white, it's it's a bit more difficult, I think. Um, but um, no, yeah. the colors don't matter. Yeah, right. There's you definitely see the the missing blocks there. Um, yep. But for the people who want more eye candy, there's also color. Yeah. And um, we should get a game going sometime of Tetranet, the multiplayer version. There's oh uh, yes, Here there's we a couple go. of clients for FreeBSD. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, controls are I easy. I used to uh, play a lot of that on IRC that, with people, but that doesn't require a, a central server, right? This is just that one does. Um, the multiplayer one does. Uh, it is a server-based thing. Uh, it's how you prevent cheating. Ah, yeah, of course, because otherwise you would uh, win other ways. <laughs> yeah, so the server gets to mediate the disagreement about who did what to whom, because um, in the multiplayer one. There are, um, when you clear a line, there are letter blocks that will appear in place of an existing block. Um, and when Those you clear a line with the letter in it, that goes in your inventory, and then you can use that uh, against people. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> so I know like these. The letter A will add a line to the target player. So you just press, you know, four to add it against player four. Uh, or there's C to delete a line. You probably do that against yourself. Although you can play in teams, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's really dastardly ones like the S lets you trade your field for someone else's. Oh, <laughs> so you Here, might sabotage dead. yours really badly and then <laughs> give it to someone. Mm-hmm. Although you hope they don't have an S to give it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So and you have so to read really quick. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So yeah. the Tetris games are on in the shell. Uh, but before we completely lose you, we have more stuff like the poor man's CI, hosted CI for BSD with shell scripting and duct tape. Over at yep. GitHub. Currently uh, supports FreeBSD and NetBSD. Runs in Google Cloud. Has a controller that has a listener, a dispatcher, and a collector. Uh, then a pub sub topics for the work queue, the pool queue, and the done queue. As builders, logs, and a logging service. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, here's a diagram how it's mm-hmm. supposed to work. And yeah, not so poor, this man. Um, but if in case you need something simple and not too uh, complicated and uh, resource-hungry, then this is the way to go. Yeah. Ah, yes, this is for the keyboard freaks up here. Uh, why I use the IBM Model M keyboard that is older than me. <laughs> well, your favorite keyboard, you wanna, you never want to part with that. So in here, uh, the, the author describes uh, that he had to start uh, the blog post with, uh, of course, quoting himself about uh, the last primary keyboard I use in my life might be the IBM Model M. I'll probably last me the decades to the day that keyboards should become obsolete. I don't know mm. that keyboards will become obsolete. <laughs> Not anytime soon, yeah. I can type <laughs> faster than I can talk. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's a little uh, uh, description and how various keyboard variations of the IBM keyboards um, 
are in that picture. So there's a, a top left anti-clockwise description. And then he has a little bit of history of his keyboard purchases, starting from a Logitech G15 in 2005 uh, with a lot of extra keys. And then uh, then 2011 till 2018, the Unicomp Space Saver 104 Black with pictures, of course. And uh, The Unicomp is what uh, Andrew, my minion, got for Christmas last year, uh, so 2017, uh, because he wanted the Buckling Spring like the IBM Model M. Um, for nostalgia reasons. Yeah, so they bought the original tooling for the Model M and basically continue to manufacture those keyboards. Oh. Okay, so there's a lot of keyboards in here and different models and part numbers in case you want to uh, compare with yours. Um, but down here, uh, it's the article uh, telling us, so what is this IBM Model M and why is it so great? So the IBM Model M was a keyboard was, uh, as first released in 1985 as a cheaper successor to the Model F. It's hard to imagine a keyboard more expensive as Model M keyboards cost a, <laughs> cost a bomb even in those days, but it's true. And it was a very durable capacity buckling spring that has this one, uh, but was expensive to produce. Hence, IBM made the Model M with lower cost membrane buckling spring model. And at the same time, the Model M pioneered the ANSI 101 key layout that is still in use today. This keyboard was also the first one to utilize the PS2 connector, which would go on to be in service for decades. Yes, until uh, USB keyboards came. And there's a little um, animation, how the mechanics work for the key presses. Oh, this is really uh, a keyboard lover here. Uh, mm -hmm. Very detailed and into a lot of specifics like mechanics and layouts. and Yeah, uh, well worth checking out. Uh, for anyone who's curious, uh, what I have, I can't really show you, uh, <laughs> is a Cooler Master Master Keys Pro L, um, which is uh, comes in your choice of Cherry MX switches. I like blues. Uh, some people like reds or browns or stealths or lots of different ones. Um, but I like it. Uh, very minimal frame. Uh, I, I would, uh, it works out okay because I use a... Uh, an actual wristband thing. Uh, mm -hmm. So I don't need a lot of bezel on the bottom. Um, I very much like it. Uh, it comes in, the Master Keys comes in three models. You can get it uh, as like a, a very small one. The S is just the keyboard. You lose the number pad and the arrow keys. Uh, or you can get it with just no number pad. So you get the arrow keys, but not the number pad. But I go for the large because I use the number pad a lot. Uh, and the arrow keys sometimes. So I like the full keyboard, but mm. I'm still stuck to my uh, end of 2013 MacBook Pro keyboard with physical escape key, mind you. The next one that I probably oh. get won't have that. <laughs> my 2016 <laughs> MacBook Pro has the physical escape key, although it's because it's the cheaper model. <laughs> yeah, right. The lower end still have those, but that's a different story. The the <laughs> downside is you can't get one with the physical escape key, but with all the USB-C ports. You can only get more USB-C ports by getting the touchscreen escape key. Uh, Higher-end models, yeah. Uh, yeah, so go with uh, your favorite keyboards as long as they are uh, capable of pressing keys. And um, going to the next item is a privilege-separated and sandboxed IPv6 stateless address auto-configuration daemon. Yeah, uh, this is... Uh, Florian Obser's presentation for BSD can, I think. He's got his slides ready and uh, has posted them already. That was last year's BSD can. Oh, sorry, oh. yes, it was last year's yeah. BSD can. So uh, it talks about how he modified the uh, Slack daemon on OpenBSD to be privilege separated. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think I should. Isn't there also the recording available for that one? Uh, yep, there should be a video of this as well. Mm hmm. Cool, so you can watch it and click the, the slides uh, in parallel. And we also have a Google-free Android setup for people using that as their um, mobile operating system. Or mm -hmm. not only mobile, it's also running on other devices. And there are basically, first it starts with a disclaimer. Yes, you're in no way uh, responsible for damage, uh, or the author at least, to phone or other problems caused as a result of this article. And first thing, of course, is backing up your device, then covers a little bit of install requirements, 
and then uh, it gets into the details of um, setting it up and uh, installing the version. Mm, recommended applications are covered, like navigation, email, security, and password management, tools, messaging, and entertainment, as a lot of apps. There are a lot of things people uh, might want to check out, uh, as well as networking and pro tips in case you get stuck. And yeah, backing up SMS messages and uh, all the important things you want to still keep with your uh, new phone or the new phone setup, at least. Yep. Uh, and uh, quite detailed, even getting into the um, captive portal detection. Normally, Androids detect a captive portal by trying to load a specific Google URL. You can change that to be a different URL so that uh, Google doesn't know every time you're using coffee shop Wi Fi. <laughs> Or yeah, Edu Roam everywhere. <clears throat> well, the, I guess Edu Roam does have a capture portal, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, they have one. But it's just so once you set it up, once or once it's set up to your device, it's just ah, I'm connected. There must be a university building around here somewhere. <laughs> yep. And lastly, we have our reminder of the upcoming BSD user Stockholm meetup. Uh, which will be Tuesday, May 7th uh, from 6 p.m. to 9.30 at the B3 office in central Stockholm. Uh, and we're hoping to see a bunch of people there. Yeah, it seems to be becoming a regular thing, and it's good because then people can uh, meet people they met before or met new people who could make the, the previous ones. And so it is a continuation there. So nice effort. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you um, to speaking of, all the people working yeah. organizing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, feedback and questions section is up for your uh, interested um, listening. Uh, starting with Zichman, I guess. Hi, and a Sunday afternoon toy project for us. Uh, mm-hmm. While the D-Paste is loading, I should probably mention that you can send us feedback and questions for future episode to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And then we'll have something to cover in this episode. These could be questions. This could be some stuff you found on the internet or um, anything you want to see in the show that is BSD related uh, in a, or Unix even in a wider term. So um, is it loading for you, Alan, as well? Yeah, it's, oh, it's, have... mine, I've, mine's been loaded for an hour. Oh, okay. If it's well, not working for you, deep, deep the other ones and I'll deal with this one. So the question was, hi, guys. I've been listening for a while, and I really enjoyed the show. Please keep it up. Uh, it was also fun to get to see Alan's talk at FOSDEM and meet him in person. As for the topic of the email, I recently had some fun hooking up some shell scripts, CGI, and SMTBD to create my own uh, SMS slash email gateway. Ah. Uh, and they have a link here. to their project with their low-tech SMS gateway for fun and no profit. <laughs> um, so they're actually running the fortune command in the cats category and mailing uh, one of these uh, off to their wife. Um, so then the SMS message basically um, sets the to and from and uh, uses... Um, Twilio uh, and its API to send an SMS message. Cool. So in case you want to get information about system status or any alarms that you should be aware of. Yep. And then they're uh, using the SMS command uh, and a phone number to be able to send in that direction and one in the other direction. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Uh, it could be useful if you wanted to build a monitoring system or something that you want to be able to send text alerts and so on. Yes, yeah, that can be helpful in case you want to wake up at 3 a.m. the night with your phone ringing, telling you that the server disk space is uh, <laughs> getting low. Only 100 gigs free. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, let me sleep another hour. <laughs> well, then okay. there'll be zero bytes free. So, no, I had to actually fix it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, so Shrink thanks for that. <laughs> or that, yeah, put in another disk. Um, <laughs> various ways. Um, yeah, uh, the next one is Clint, and while the tabs are still loading for me, I guess D-Paste has a problem. Uh, uh, he writes about tuning ZFS for NVMe. Yep, uh, so Clint says, 
I watched your Explain Like I'm 5 talk from Fosdem, and you answered a question about tuning ZFS for NVMe devices. When you mentioned adjusting the QMAX, are you talking about the sysctls like vfs.zfs.vdev.syncwritemaxactive? Yes, that's exactly the ones I'm referring to. Uh, as I mentioned in the talk, the current issue is that those sysctls are system-wide. So if you have two pools, say one of hard drives and one of NVMe, uh, changing that setting will apply to both. And turning those values up for a hard drive can make the performance pretty bad. Uh, it, it'll Mostly it'll make the responsiveness bad. When you have a sync write where an application is waiting for this write to complete before it does the next thing, you don't want it at in line behind 64 other writes that are maybe less important. Um, if you keep the queue depth short, then it's never going to have to wait very long. Um, but because NVMe devices can execute uh, usually 16 or 64 commands at once, if you don't have enough queue depth, then you're not actually going to use all the bandwidth that the device has. Uh, you know, if you feed it one command at a time, it's only using you know one sixteenth of its available capacity or whatever. Um, so for NVMe, you want to turn that up, but uh, if you have mixed devices, that's going to be a problem. That's why I've been working on the VDEV properties uh, proposal where we would actually be able to adjust these settings uh, for each VDEV or at least each pool so that you could uh, say, hey, for my NVMe pool, I want lots of QDEPs, and for my hard drive pool, I want less, and so on. Because mm. uh, then they go on, if this is the only way to adjust the QMAX and it's a global setting, how should this be tuned for a machine that has a pool of NVMe and a different pool of spinning drives? Uh, that's the problem. Uh, basically, if you turn those values up to get more performance out of the NVMe, you're going to hurt the latency and responsiveness of the hard drive. Um, so I wouldn't change them very, by very much um, if you were worried about the performance of the hard drives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, that... And then lastly, this is how should this be tuned for a pool of spinning drives with an NVMe L2 arc? None of those settings affect the L2 arc. Um, its speed limit is controlled by a different set of CCTLs uh, that have L2 in the name. Um, there's, I think, the write max and write boost. The write max is the maximum amount you're going to write out to the L2 arc device uh, per second. I think in the default is like 8 or 10 megabytes. And then there's the boost, which is how much more per second you'll allow if the device has never been full yet. Since the L2 arc is um, not persistent, it means if you reboot, it goes back to considering itself empty. And so it um, will let it feed more to the L2 arc uh, if it has <coughs> if it has never been full yet. Mm -hmm. um, although there's some work uh, on finally making the L2 arc persistent uh, so that when you reboot, you'll be able to just reload the stuff that's in the L2 arc instead of uh, just overwriting it. Uh, so yes, sadly right now those are system-wide. Uh, work in progress on making that better, but it's probably a ways off still. Mm -hmm. Okay, but something we could look out for. Yep. All right. Um, thanks, Clint, for that question. And last but not least is James with a show question. Uh, goes like this. Hi. I may have the chance to present to the BSDs, uh, on the BSDs at my local Linux user group here in Oklahoma City. I wonder if you have any advice or insight on how to approach this. I have watched YouTube videos of presentations by Michael W. Lucas on the, at the Michigan's uh, user group and another one by George Neville Neal. And he was thinking of modeling it basically along these lines, possibly with simple setup examples for them. Uh, yeah, that's probably the best. Um, I think the um, FreeBSD is not a Linux distro. I think the slides for that are available somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and we're at least trying to get that to be kind of a, a pre-canned talk that anybody can give at random places. Um, but of course, you know, customizing it for your style or what uh, you think the user group would be interested in, especially you know if they have a theme or something, um, to make the talk fit in better, then yes, customizing it is good. Um, Lucas and, and George Neville are very different styles of presenters, so it's good to uh, look at a couple different people and see which one uh, kind of fits your style. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think the FreeBSD is not a Linux distro. It's been given by a bunch of other people as well. I know Philip Pabst did one in Asia that yeah. I've seen. And I think a couple other people have given it as well. Uh, so that can also be interesting to watch the same talk being given by three or four different people and watch how how much the presenter changes what the presentation seems like. Mm, different focus, different uh, styles. Yeah, yeah, it's just, um, you know, different emphasis and different, uh, you know, styles. Mm. What you can also do is describe your own uh, story, how you got into the BSDs and how you discovered it and what you like about them, what the features are that you like and some of the differences between Linux. And so this will give them uh, a better comparison, like how you would approach as a newbie for someone who wants to try this out. But yeah, good idea having that as as the... Use a Linux user conference because then you don't have to describe what Unix is in the first place, so you can skip yep. that. Let us know how it goes. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, pretty much wrapping up this episode for this week. Thank you for watching, and see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>